podcast one production. Welcome to Allergies, where Professors Katie Allen and Mimi Tang from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute break down in detail the diagnosis, management, prevention and cure of allergies, as well as the facts and myths about intolerances and treating other diseases like asthma and eczema. We've wrapped up talking about anaphylaxis in the previous episodes, so we're going to move on to different types of allergies. Katie, what's the difference between IgE and non-IgE? So the way a patient presents with these two conditions is one is an immediate reaction and one is a delayed reaction. That's kind of the simplest way. And the immediate reaction uh, is kind of like someone's been stung by a bee and they their face swells up, their lips swell up, they might have hives on their body, which are little welts. Um, they may vomit, uh, they have coughing and wheezing, they may have severe reaction, which is anaphylaxis. So that's the immediate reaction um, and that's the IgE type. The non-IgE type is basically gut reactions. I think that's the simplest way to think about it. So people might vomit or have nausea or diarrhea and they're low-level symptoms that are really annoying, but they may not have a reaction immediately go to a doctor. So they're delayed reactions. So even though they're, you would say, low level, does that mean they're not as serious? Uh, They can be serious. So celiac disease, for instance, um, well, some people call it a non-IgE, some don't, but these non-IgE reactions are more like celiac disease and everyone knows what that is, which is a wheat uh, intolerance, I suppose. And so you might have gluten in your diet and you notice you're not as well as you would be without gluten in your diet. So it's a sort of... Sorry, can I jump in? <laughs> Probably oversimplification, <laughs> is it, maybe? Well, no, no. I think what you're really asking is, you know, it's not whether it's serious or not serious, but um, the non-IgE-mediated gut reactions, they're more slow in development. So yeah. they're, they're less acute. You know, one is acute. The IgE-mediated reactions are very acute. Katie was saying they start very quickly, usually within 10, 15 minutes of a reaction and almost always within an hour, sorry, within 10 to 15 minutes of eating the food mm. and almost always within an hour, whereas the non-IgE-mediated reactions tend to be delayed. So they tend to happen hours or even days afterwards. And as Katie was saying, you get symptoms mainly in the gut. So it might be abdominal pain, vomiting, diarrhoea, poor growth, but they're not sort of this acute, life-threatening situation that we see with anaphylaxis. They're more of a chronic, if you don't treat a non-IgE-mediated food allergy and the baby doesn't put on weight, that is actually quite serious still. Mm. But it's not this life-threatening, immediate anaphylaxis. It's just a more serious condition over time. Mm. And, and that's why the patients, when they present, um, they can make the link. I've just The child's just eaten the food. They have this nasty reaction. Just like the child's been stung by a bee, they have a nasty reaction. While the other ones, the... Uh, non-IgE are sort of slower forming and they can be quite serious because babies can get very sick and lose a lot of weight. So mm. they still can be serious. They're just yeah. they are a, a more a slower slower building. We call that in medicine acute versus chronic, but it's a bit of a medical term. Would it still be the same types of uh, the same common foods that are causing these allergies? Yeah. Yes. It's just the di- is it a different way that the body handles it? Well, they're completely different conditions. I mean, it's very unhelpful from a medical terminology point of view because we call it IgE-mediated because the IgE antibody mm-hmm. is responsible and we call the other ones non-IgE-mediated, but it's not actually um, very sophisticated. It just means we don't know what the hell is the immune reaction. We just know that there is immune, an immune it's reaction. It's just not It's just not, not the IgE, IgE antibody. So it's really unhelpful. So we tend to say, you know, for, you know the anaphylaxis allergies and the gut allergies. That's probably the easiest thing to think about. 
Because one, the IgE one is associated with most this most severe presentation or most serious presentation is anaphylaxis. The other one, the non-IgE, tends to present with gut symptoms. I just think what Katie just said is very clear. For the, for the consumer, we just want to say it's either IgE-mediated, in which case there is the risk of an immediate type reaction that could be anaphylaxis, or um, it's non-IgE. It doesn't involve the IgE antibody, in which case you have a more delayed presentation with gut-like symptoms. What about management then? Is it, Would you say the uh, steps with management differ from how you'd manage IgE reactions, or is there a different sort of plan to go ahead? Well, um, the management is essentially the same in that you should eliminate the food from the diet mm-hmm. if you have an allergy that's um, caused by an immune response to the food. So in that regard, it's pretty much um, identical. The diagnostic tests are different, and so you may take different approaches to monitoring the course over time. Um, And, of course, then part of the management was identifying and recognising and treating allergic reactions in the community. Obviously, that's going to be different as well. Yeah. Um, how, well, how would you figure out what food it is? I mean, if you're, you're someone that sort of has a, quite a, a large diet of different types of foods and you find out you are getting, getting yeah. the gut reactions, then and how that, would that, you start to... Is it just a long process of slow eliminations and yeah, stop lot, eating lot, this for a while? Yeah, a lot of people do that in themselves already. Particularly, now we're sort of talking a lot more about adults, but adults do it with their children as yep. well. Um, and so it's a bit like detective work. Mm-hmm. Um, people will read up on the website. Um, they'll often go and see alternative health practitioners. People know that dairy gluten, these things can be problematic for them to actually have problems of intolerance, which are the two most common, in adults anyway, the most mm-hmm. common forms of intolerance and probably is fair enough to say for children as well. I think though, in answer to the, the question of is that how you do it? Yes, but you, it should be done with the guidance of a specialist. I don't think it's a good idea for people to be trying their eliminations at home and because what we do know is that even for all the allergies, IgE-mediated and the non-IgE-mediated food allergies, the the foods that cause these symptoms are only a handful. So um, at the end of the day, we have an idea of which foods are more likely to cause these symptoms and we can guide patients in how to eliminate and reintroduce to identify the right food. What we don't want happening is someone at home doing a very broad elimination diet on themselves or their child, which could actually place their child at, at risk of malnutrition or at least missing out on the good things that are in our diet. And we can learn to manage our allergies with the help of your free app, AllergyPal, which makes things so much easier. But with all these different types of allergies, do we approach diagnosis in a different way? So when we talk about non-IG-mediated food allergies, often we talk about starting at the top of the gastrointestinal tract with the symptoms that you can present with related to symptoms of reflux. So Mm. your esophagus, if it's not working well, because your job of your your gullet or your esophagus is to get the food from your mouth to your stomach. And if it doesn't pass down there properly, you get symptoms. So you can get symptoms of reflux or regurgitation, so food going in the wrong direction. You can get symptoms of heartburn. You can have problems with swallowing. All the food can get stuck. Mm Mm-hmm. Pretty straightforward, actually. So any of those symptoms suggest that there's a problem with your gullet. Um, And those can be caused by all sorts of conditions. But in children, non-IG-mediated food allergies is one of the more common causes. The other one is reflux. Um, And reflux and non-IG-mediated food allergy have a lot of overlap. And they're the symptoms of a condition with a wonderful name called eosinophilic (laughs) esophagitis. Or EOE. We call it EOE. EOE. And EOE presents like reflux, but it's caused by um, a reaction to food. 
And um, both of those conditions you should see a gastroenterologist. If the baby is having too much spitting up and vomiting and failing to thrive, go see a gastroenterologist so that they can put a little uh, endoscope inside, so a little tube inside the the esophagus to see is it inflamed in the way that Mimi mentioned with eosinophils or with other inflammatory cells. So then, then there's the stomach um, and, and there is actually arguments about whether inflammation in the stomach is related to food allergy. Surprisingly, actually, there's not a lot of evidence, I think, that uh, eosinophilic gastritis is caused by food, but that's a very rare condition. Yeah. Meaning, so, sorry, inflammation of the stomach. In, yeah. Inflammation, well, I would, often it's it's more than the gastritis, the gastroenteritis, so it's sort of the top part of your small intestine as well. And what Katie's saying is it's been very difficult to kind of define that particular condition. So there's a lot of good data and papers written about eosinophilic esophagitis where you've got the eosinophils being in, uh, causing inflammation in the upper um, gut, mm-hmm. but sort of when you've got your stomach and the upper end of the small intestine involved, um, we're not sure, but it's been suggested that it can similarly cause symptoms of pain and vomiting and maybe then poor poor eating. But the, and In which case, you still it's your gastroenterologist who will d- d- diagnose that. They'll do a little yeah. scope and have a look in both the esophagus and in the stomach, and that's called a gastroscopy. So we're talking about the esophagus, then the stomach, where food allergy doesn't seem to reside as much. So we go into the small intestine, and there is something called enteropathy, which is inflammation of the small intestine, the next part of the intestine. And there are lots of conditions in that area, one uh, that is uh, uh, a reaction to cow's milk in babies um, and some people also have reactions to other foods and you have to see a gastroenterologist really to diagnose those conditions. Some experts believe celiac disease uh, comes under that umbrella but um, immunologists and allergists tend to think it doesn't come under that, um, that umbrella because celiac disease, which is an adverse reaction to gluten, is actually an autoimmune disease, not an allergy. So we can put that aside but celiac disease uh, and these other enteropathies can present in a similar way, which is vomiting, diarrhoea and failing to thrive. And therefore, for all intents and purposes, if you have serious sort of presentations with those symptoms, you really should see a gastroenterologist so they, gastroenterologist so they can take a biopsy from the small intestine to, to diagnose it. There is another condition in the small intestine called, and this is a really long word, food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome, and it has this funny acronym called FPIES. Um, and that presents in a very curious way. And it's probably not all that common, but when it does present, it's very, very clear cut in its history. And that is in the first year of life, a baby on the first or second exposure to a particular food will have severe and profound vomiting two to four hours after ingesting the food. And the foods are quite unusual. It can be rice or oats or meat, um, sometimes cow's milk, Mm -hmm. Um, what else am I missing? Fish, lots of different things. But it's profound vomiting. They vomit so much that they become pale and floppy. Um, And they often rush to the emergency room and usually the doctors will make a diagnosis then. But again, they're quite dramatic presentations. So that's FPIES. It's quite rare, but it's a particular food allergy syndrome. Then you move down the intestine to this large intestine 
Um, and there's something called colitis or proctocolitis. And again, babies in the first year of life might present with bloody diarrhoea. And it's very frightening for parents when and they present. And is that colitis? It's a colitis, yeah. And um, it's very frightening for parents. Often the babies are thriving and they're quite happy themselves, but the, the mum and dad see this bloody stool or poo in the, in the nappy and it's really quite frightening for them. They do go to the doctor and taking a particular food out can often make that blood and diarrhoea disappear you know, within a few days. So um, those conditions are quite, quite a, a, a wide and diverse group of conditions, but they all have something in common. They all have gut reactions food is involved, we don't really understand the immune mechanism behind it, we don't really know how common they are, but we do know how to manage them and we do know how to diagnose them. And the diagnosis usually involves a gastroenterologist putting a scope into the the top end or the bottom end um, and it usually involves removing the food. And the prognosis for these conditions is pretty good. Most of them tend to resolve over the next few months or years um, and um, you really need to see a specialist to be managed to make sure you don't fall down any holes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think one of the major differences that uh, has come through from Katie's explanation is for the IgE-mediated um, food allergies, you can do a blood test or a skin test looking for that IgE antibody. But because we don't really understand the, the mechanisms driving the non-IgE-mediated food allergies, there is no blood test, there is no skin test, and really it's based on the history, um, ex- examination, and then an endoscopy, uh, what, what Katie was talking about, putting a tube down into the gut to have a look at what's going on and take a biopsy to see if there's inflammation. It's really, um, that's the only test that you can do um, of a diagnostic nature. Otherwise, it relies on history, examination, taking the food out of the diet and bringing it back in in order to ma- work out the diagnosis. Where do you see the future of, I guess, the research and being able to find preventative methods or cures for these sorts of things? Yeah, so eosinophilicus ovigitis, the one that can present like reflux, um, has has had a lot of um, research into it because it's a very clearly defined syndrome or disease um, and people are understanding more and more about the mechanism. And in America in particular, there are a lot of, there is a, there are a lot of companies uh, that are really hot on the trail of using what's called things like monoclonal antibodies. And those are therapeutics that are trying to attack the antibodies to neutralise them so that you don't get the problem. So um, elimination of the food is one way of doing it. Um, sometimes people also need to have steroids to dampen down the inflammation response. Um, and for the severe cases, sometimes with eosinophilic esophagitis or EOE, uh, they are starting to try... Um, novel therapies like um, uh, monoclonal antibodies. I should also say with the EOE presentation that sometimes the children or or the adults have such severe problems with reflux um, or food sticking that their esophagus can become scarred and they can actually have difficulty swallowing food. So as a gastroenterologist, when I take a history about someone eating food, if they're having to drink a lot of water when they're eating their food to get the food down or if they have to chew and chew and chew and chew before they can swallow, or if meat or, or food that's hard to chew up gets stuck and they can't get it out again, that's a really significant red flag that you should go and see somebody because it may well be the esophagus is having trouble squeezing the food down and it may even have something called a stricture, which is scarring the esophagus and that can be quite serious. So all of those things are good treatments, I think, and there's a lot of movement happening in terms of treating that allergy. But in terms of a cure, none of them would really address 
it, it, they're not cures. They don't actually take away the problem um, in itself, so to speak. And uh, the research that's being done on oral immunotherapy, for example, or other immunotherapy approaches such as probiotic food immunotherapy that are under investigation for the IgE-mediated food allergies. And they're sort of working towards trying to take the allergy away, what, you know, heading towards what might be potentially a cure. Um, That is not applicable to the non-IgE-mediated food allergy syndromes. In fact, one of the side effects of such treatments has been the development of eosinophilic esophagitis when it's used to um, treat, in in a long-term way, the IgE-mediated food allergies. So just to get back to moving down the intestine, so we talked about the diagnosis at the different intestine sites. Um, So eosinophilic esophagitis diagnosed by having symptoms, seeing a gastroenterologist, they're treated by eliminating the food, having steroids or maybe having to open up the stricture or even some more serious medication. When you go down to the enteropathies, um, either whether it's celiac disease or one of the other enteropathies, whether or not you think celiac disease is a food allergy, the treatment is the same, which is removal of the food. And if you remove the food, the child is perfectly well. So it's an easy, once you make the diagnosis, it's actually an easy thing to manage. Uh, With celiac disease, it's a lifelong condition. That's it. You've got celiac disease for the rest of your life. With the other food enteropathies or with um, reactions that are occurring in the small intestine, that you are likely to outgrow those food allergies with time. And FPIs, that other very rare condition we talked about in the small intestine, um, has a very good prognosis and most people over the next three to five years of life are likely to outgrow it. When we move down to the colon, the proctocolitis and the colitis, uh, the same is true. So removing the food, that's the only treatment and it does work. Um, and with time, uh, it is likely to get better as well. So the eosinophilic esophagitis, there's a lot of research on because it it has a um, quite significant and severe impact if the person develops a stricture. It's quite serious. Um, and there's a lot of research going on about how to prevent that from happening. With the enteropathies and the colitis, because removing the food tends to make the symptoms go away and you're most likely to outgrow it, we t- kind of don't get time to really diagnose and, or to do much research about it before it's already sort of starting to disappear. So probably there's not as much research on it because we know avoiding it is fine. Allergies was presented by Professor Katie Allen and Professor Mimi Tang and was produced by me, Matt Dwyer, with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Join us in our next episode as we discuss the facts and the myths surrounding intolerances and talk about what actually happens to the inside of your body. For more apps, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app and listen for free. Listener.